Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Welcome, listeners. I'm back today again with Dr. Logan Sparks for part two of our interview series. And in the last session, um, Dr. Sparks talked about Elena Avila in passing. In this segment, we're going to go into much greater depth, and I want to first give everybody the title of her book is called Woman Who Glows in the Dark, and uh, certainly it's a book that I highly recommend. And one of the reasons that I wanted Logan on in the first place is to talk about the research that he did that led to an article that he did about her life. And it's kind of a, I guess I would describe it as a great add-on to reading her book to, to kind of take a meta position of understanding her, her life, her teachings, her contributions. So first, Welcome back, Logan. I'm glad to see you again. Hi, yeah, thank you. So if you could take us through what led to you starting that project in the first place, how you did it, what you used as data, and really how you shaped that article, and then eventually we're going to give our listeners a chance to have access to that article as well. Yeah, um, sure. Well, so... The article comes out of my experience working with Elena, mostly as a client, also learning a little bit of the medicine, the traditional medicine from her, but mostly, mostly focused on being a client of hers for about a year or so. Um, and then, you know, some years later, uh, I started a process of wanting to do more research about traditional healing. Um, I was around, like you mentioned in part one, I've been around traditional healers in Mexico, the U.S., South Africa, and also in Turkey. Um, and as far as I can recall, those are the main places where I've been exposed to the traditional medicines. I've also, like a lot of people, been exposed to Chinese traditional medicine a lot in the U.S. and other places um, and relied on it a lot for my own wellness. Um, but um, that's where I've had like very impersonal encounters with uh, ritual-focused traditional healers. Um, and so I've also spent time a little bit interviewing some of her students and apprentices and her daughter. And so the article has a couple different forms and it's gone from one platform to another, one academic journal to another. So it's still, there's still some different bits of information coming out. Um, so so it, it's in one form that's available. That, that we'll talk about at the end, it's already available. And that one was basically focused on me just, just gathering data from both my own experiences with her and then also interviewing uh, people that were close to her. So two, two, mainly two apprentices of hers and her daughter. And so when somebody reads the, the book, Woman Who Glows in the Dark, you end up with one kind of experience because you're you're looking at her work through her lens and i'm just curious about what your re reflections were on all of this when you 
started shaping this article, what, right. what the impressions were, how things shifted in terms of the way that you understood her, came to understand her work? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one thing is that when you're writing for an academic audience, you're not just sharing what's been beneficial to you from her life, obviously. You, you've got to include critiques. So for example, I wasn't, the interesting thing about Elena is that it wasn't easy to find people that had been very critical of her, other than, you know, the general biomedicine mainstream, you know, world that just generally doesn't like traditional healing practices. You know, that's, that's easy to find. Um, so it was interesting that, you know, I, I, just one example that's interesting about her work is that she really, um, I think is really unique. So she was very much about um, reconciling both through her medicine and her art, different ways of thinking. And I don't know if everybody got this, because I think sometimes when you're in a process with somebody, you don't see it as clearly. Um, there's a lot of work of reconciliation of differences. So when I started working with her, um, she, one of the first things she did was to recite her poem, and I don't know all the words of it by heart, but where she talks about making the sign of the cross while she's tripping over herself and this kind of like Christianity and nature-based spirituality coming together in her life. But also, you know, ob the obvious fact that she was very trained in Western, uh, you know, psychology and biomedicine. She was a, um, a master's trained psychiatric nurse. And at the same time, she was trying to, you know, uh, share the medicine as much as she could, the traditional medicines. And so as I started writing about it, just the way that um, she lived that became clearer and clearer to me. And the way that she was reconciling things that were, I would say, traditional, modern, and postmodern. And so, for example, one thing that's different about her and that did get her into a little bit of a debate at one point um, online, not directly with her, but some people wrote some critical things about her, was the fact that she didn't want people to rely on supernatural explanations when there was a natural one. And that's super interesting to me, because when I started first working with her, I mean, there's an exoticism as an Anglo person that you can develop in these situations that you assume the supernatural is important, because that's your perception of you know culture from south of the border in reality um, or border culture in the case of elena but elena really wanted people to for example like you see examples in her book where she's like you know people are coming to me saying that this person has got the evil eye on them and they've been cursed and the person is troubled because they can't get out of their marriage that's the reason that they're acting like that you know or they're schizophrenic you know and she would she would really um, talk about these very down-to-earth reasons. Not, I think, because she didn't value the whole range of human experience, but because she wanted, it, it, my ex experience of it was that she wanted people to not, as they say, spiritually bypass, right? And come up with, you know, elaborate supernatural explanations for things that were solvable and, and straightforward personal problems. You know, and she would use beautiful and elaborate traditional rituals to help people integrate parts of themselves, you know, where maybe the base of the problem was a split in the psyche, right? 
And so, so those are some of the things I started to, to realize as I, as I interviewed people and I thought about my experiences. And then I looked at her writing because those are the three sources, you know, plus other literature. And so I realized that, that basically she's doing something for a, a whole cultural collective that's gone through a lot of, you know, uh, a, co a collision of European and indigenous culture, U.S. and Mexican culture, a lot of integration. Um, this might be a good time to give a little bit of context to the listeners who don't know anything about Elena, her work, or curanderismo. Now, you and I obviously have a, a tremendous background of experience to draw from and understand why these themes are relevant, both in terms of the healing practice of an individual as well as what this has to do with the culture that it came from. But right. maybe we could take a moment to explore a little bit for the listener about what yeah. is curanderismo and how does Elena right. fit into that tradition? Right, well, it's, it's a good moment to say that because that would kind of explain why there's this issue of fusion in her work. Um, because there, there's a, there are a lot of different theories about the traditional medicines in Mexico and where they come from. But, but one thing we know, and, and you can correct me if I'm off on something, Bob, because you have a longer background than I do in this, but um, that basically it's a merger of like at least three main streams of medicines. Um, it most likely is mostly European, which itself the European medicines that were brought over are ancient Greek and have Jewish and Islamic influences too in them. Um, the folk medicine, as some people would call it, and the like university medicines. Um, then you've got the traditional practices brought over in the transatlantic slave trade um, by people from Africa. And then you have indigenous medicines. And they all, they all make up uh, like a body of work that people in Mexico and the Southwest, and then also in other parts of the world, you can also see it in Central America, parts of South America, right? Um, draw on to, to heal, to heal both physically and to heal the psyche. And um, Elena was very much about that healing of the psyche. And so that's, so it's, it's a, it's a, you know, a post-colonial reality, this kind of medicine. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of weaving together. There's so much complexity in understanding the way that Elena fit in and the way that she didn't fit in to that. And right. I'll, I'll give you an example. When I look back at my own time and I, I, not sure if I mentioned this in earlier podcasts, but Elena was one of the really influent, one of my most influential teachers. Mm. And it largely had to do with the way that she integrated Platica into Olympia, the way that she uh, connected the story, the individual person's individual story into ceremony in a creative way. Right. And she has been largely criticized for placing so much emphasis on platica, on the heart-to-heart -heart talk. 
Um, in my experience, she made it very clear what the difference was, what the distinction was between Western psychotherapy and the indigenous talk of platica. But even the amount of time that she would spend on it was very, very different than what I've found in other teachers. Other teachers who maybe in a given session would spend a few minutes on platica and then the entire rest of the time on ceremony, on prescription with herbs, on, on other things. Platica was the, maybe the least important, whereas right. for Elena, it was front and center. Right. And seeing the way that she did the work was absolutely profound to me and really had such an influence on, on me personally in, in my way of healing. And yet that's the point that she was often criticized for. Right. Because it kind of smacks of Western psychotherapy a little bit to some people, I think. They think you spend so much time talking, it's like talk therapy. Right. But, but she was so good at taking what was best from whatever she learned, you know. And that's exactly my way of looking at it. Right. Is that she did take the best of it. She was an integrator. Yeah, and I mean, she was able to, because th there are things about Western psychotherapy that are useful and things that are maybe not so useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. she blended them in an absolutely incredible way. I mean, that's my observation of her. Yeah, also, it's, whenever you say that, it reminds me, I, I forgot to mention, in terms of the criticism of her, also, there was the critique that I found online but there was a, a guy who passed on years ago, not long after she did, who had spent a lot of time studying with traditional healers in Mexico. And also his critique was that she placed, she, she talked about curses and magic and things like that as not being real. Mm. And it, it, again, it's the thing where somebody who is integrating different modalities and taking the best sometimes will create something that doesn't look like what you recognize. Right, because she wanted her clients to take responsibility for themselves and not to perpetually blame the evil eye or curses for things they could take responsibility for. But that's, but you know, she got bits and pieces from different teachers and different scenarios and she found what was best, right? And, and um, so, yeah, so I think that's her gift, that was her gift. And, and as you say, you can look at other examples of that, like the emphasis on platica and being a consejera. And I, it, it also brings me to the title of uh, the book that was written by my first teacher in curanderismo, um, who was Berta Valdez, who, and she was featured in this book called They All Want Magic. And that was a, a quote from her. She was, what she was getting at is, uh, it was a criticism that she made about the people who came to her, who basically wanted her as the healer to wave a magic wand for them to be healed and didn't want to take the personal responsibility of doing the hard work to affect change. Yeah, and she, she said to me, she said, we're co-creating this mm. process. And I love that. And that definitely informs the way I do my work. Because Family Constellations has a quite a, um, 
ritualistic feel to it, similar to like drama therapy and that kind of thing and the work that Elena did and the directions and all that. Um, and I really like that co-creating the two people are co-creating. Absolutely. And it, and it, it, it addresses the, the notion that healing is self-healing. Right. So the healer's process is to just facilitate that and maybe know when to get out of the way. Exactly. Exactly. And, and really it's because the, the person facilitating is really allowing that person to bring their own fuerza, their own life force, their own prana, their own, you know, and, and to really let that be the mover, you know, and you're just helping the person see where they might need to move. Yeah. You know, so yeah. And so she was really, there's a lot more to her. I really am glad you're raising these points because there's a lot more to her. Yes, she revived, you know, curanderismo for many, many, many people. Yeah. She's not the only person, but she was extremely key because of her writing and because of her presence, her, her ability to work with groups, like her amazing capacity to facilitate groups and recite poetry. And, you know, she was a playwright and a poet and she had a very theatrical side. So like, you know, she, but, but, there is something besides just encouraging people to look at the traditional medicine that she did, you know, which was this unique creation. The other thread that I yeah. want to pick up uh, that she has been criticized for, and this was something that I, I had conversations with her about, have to do with the notion of identity. Right. Because curanderismo, as you, as you pointed out, has these these multiple elements that are, uh, are creatively blended in this amazing syncretism yeah. in 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 forming what we know as curanderismo but right. within within that tradition who are the healers you know there are people who are very much on the christian the catholic end of the spectrum in the right. work that they do and then Others, I mean, especially as curanderismo kind of, of changes and adapts to a modern and postmodern world, there's like a re-indigenization that's right. going on right now. That's right. And I know Elena talked about how sometimes she was told that she didn't belong in certain gatherings. Like she didn't, she was at some gathering of healers and there was a, a place for the indigenous healers and a place for others who were not. And when she right. put herself into the indigenous group, she was attacked by people who were saying that she didn't belong there. Right. So there is this whole notion about identity that goes along with it. And the, the, the whole mestizo idea of mixture, this admixture of cultures and who is who and who belongs doing right. what. So did you uncover any of that in your process of doing this work? Well, she, I mean, one thing I like that she did, and that really resonates also with my family constellation work, is she did want people to be connected to their own roots and the kinds of healing knowledge that came through their ancestors, even if it uh, was not like a current traditional healing practice. I mean, um, after I started working with her, for example, some relatives of mine started talking to me about some Appalachian healing practices that existed that my family knew about in the South that I had never heard about before. 
So I feel like she was a catalyst. And if you look in her book, she'll talk a lot about connecting people to their roots, mm. you know? And so inevitably she was connected to hers, right? And yep. from what I understand, you know, she had Spanish and French ancestry and indigenous ancestry. I think Maya, Sapotec, and Aztec, if I'm not mistaken. And so that's a lot to have. And like we, we all really should witness as much as we can to our own ancestry. So I think she, I think she didn't have it that, but you know, the thing is that if you, if you accept that complexity, it does open you up to people who are looking for purity. And I think that there are reasons, like in some situations, there are reasons why it's relevant that a community stay close to its own people and its own roots for survival. And But there were other moments where it could be challenging, I'm sure for somebody like her, who definitely was a person of indigenous and mixed heritage. And, you know, she, she spoke from that place, ultimately, I feel like. Well, and she spoke from her own experience. And that's, right. you know, to me, that's the beauty of curanderismo and what makes it a world system is yeah. the fact that you had these elements from not, not just disparate cultures, but cultures that were literally clashing in horrible, bloody violence. Yes. That something beautiful came out of that. Yeah. You know, oh, it, doesn't, it doesn't excuse the things that were done in, this is my opinion, that it doesn't excuse the things that were done, but at least it, it created an opportunity for individual healing and to a large extent, a cohesive group healing as well. Right, right. And it, and it just kind of also emphasizes how powerful real healers are in society in terms of the influence they can have. Because, because authentic healers will take the resources they have, you know, at hand and use them. So if a conquering people come in and there's something that, can, that they know that can help people, a, a, a healer will take advantage of whatever they can or whatever, whatever they feel comfortable with taking. You know, that's important. But, you know, whatever is at hand, you know, and, and most good healers I know do this. You know, if something is, is better handled by the chiropractor, then, you know, they send you to a chiropractor. Whatever works is what people are interested in. I know Patricia Gonzalez in her book, I've been reading some of her writing for some of the work I'm doing now. She also looks at it from an indigenous perspective where she says, you know, because I don't want to, to, to say that I know that perspective, but people that have told me that come from that background, like that I know, say similar things to her. And she said that, you know, our work, she said basically in, in Red Medicine, I think, is um, at core indigenous healing work. But it doesn't stop being that because we take something that's useful to us to help people with. What a you great know? way of putting it. That's yeah. excellent. Yeah. She said, whether it's using a pendulum to douse or whatever it is, you know, at core, it's indigenous medicine, but it has the agency to take, you know, and I won't get into it, but there's a very interesting discussion of the concept of hybridity in academia that talks about this. It's really interesting. The way that people have experienced colonialism um, have the power to subvert whatever comes to them in the way that they want to use it. So we have to be really careful about how we read that, you know, when we see Christianity incorporated by people who've been colonized, what does that mean to them? 
Not what does it look like to you? What does it mean to them? Because they exactly. might be using and, and the I power think, of I, I think it's also important that when we look at indigenous people who are practicing Christians of whatever denomination, I'll use Catholicism in, in this example. Oh, man, yeah. It's not that it's not so much that they are native people practicing Catholicism as much as it is that they are indigenous people responding right. to the, the, the dictums, the teachings of Catholicism. Right. And that there's, there's, an environment. Yeah. there's a big distinction between those two. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I, that, that makes sense. And I just, you know, as, as you know, you know, my teaching career for the past few years has been with Indigenous undergraduate students. And for me, the bottom line is like, ask Indigenous people what they mean by what they're doing, you know. And so, you know, and that's how we learn is by being students and listeners to people that have come before us. This is also a principle of family constellations, honoring who comes first. That's why we work on healing relationship with our parents and then with our ancestors, because those that come first, we honor them to find our own place. Beautiful. And Logan, that's a great place for us to end our, our second in this series of three podcast interviews. So I want to thank you so much for providing some really great insights to the, into the work of Elena Avila during this session. So thank you, Logan. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.